Hi, my name is Vivian Aqua and this is Let's Humanize the Workplace. I know a lot of people are watching this episode or are really anticipating this episode because they seem to think that it will be a battle, but it won't be. It will, it will be a juicy battle, though. It will be a juicy battle. So, again, this episode, this, this platform is meant to inspire employees and employers to do better. Um, the, the main reason why I'm going to do that, I'm going to highlight the person that, uh, that is the cause of everything, but first I need to show something on my screen. So if you want to stay tuned or if you want to be updated with the new and the juicy episodes, go to bit.bit.htwnews and you will be on the, the news. You will be on the news list and you will receive it. Also know that this episode will be shared on the podcast. So in a few days, you can definitely listen to it when you are uh, in, a, in, in the bus, maybe, or when you are in, driving in the car or just doing your work, doing work hours. Listen to it because this is a must have. This is an epic episode that you must uh, listen to, re-listen to, watch to, re-watch to because it's a must have. So... Going to the next slide, I have to bring some attention to what I've seen recently, and that has to do with um, the reason, um, let's say that um, this lady was making racial comments within Adidas. No, also know that Adidas made a statement with Blackout Tuesday. Also know that Adidas is working with Queen B. Queen B saying Beyonce. And what would Beyonce think if they, she knew that there was somebody within the organization who was making these comments, who was making racial comments, who was sharing comments where she made a, uh, um, it was a person, the head of HR, head of human resources, made a, uh, a statement or made a few uh, comments about why, you know, why this whole movement is necessary. And a lot of people within Adidas brought this into the light. And when you don't address or when you don't provide adequate training, not only training for, you know, the employees itself, but also training, you know, to the to the top, to the leaders, to the managers, and do this frequently, this would not have happened. So I'm just saying that you need to train everybody within the organization and not only commit with a one-time training. You need to build that muscle. You need to build the, the, the diversity, equity, inclusion muscle so that everybody knows how to uh, speak up when it comes to discrimination, speak up when it comes to uh, racial injustice or speak up when it comes to social injustice or whatever injustice that occurs in the workplace. So um, I just wanted to highlight this and also want to give a shout out to Queen B. For those, for everybody who's uh, part of the, of the Queen B tribe, um, just tag her, just let her know that, you know, the brand that she's working with should do, be doing better. So, um, that's it. And I also want to highlight, because I mentioned, you know, a special person who started this whole movement. And this is my son. At the time, he was three, uh, Orlando, and uh, he is my life coach. He doesn't know that. He doesn't realize that. But he's the main reason why I'm advocating for thriving workplaces, why I am advocating for diversity, for inclusion, for so many justice that we need. We want the employee experience to be 
the best for everybody, not for some people, not for just the 90% of the people, not just for 50% of the people, all the people. As he's biracial, it is important for me as a black mom to let him know, tell him about the social injustice that's happening, of course, on, on his level. But I wish that I hadn't, I did not have to do that, but I have to. And I also have to do my best to create that world, create that workplace, create that environment where I know that he will deal with less BS than his mother dealt with. So um, he's my, my ride or die. He's my all. And of course, I love my partner as well. But Orlando is the reason why I am advocating for this. So uh, I'm doing my best. But with no, okay, I also have to highlight Michael, Michael Grunewald, this one is especially for you. I hope that you're ready with your popcorn. I'm hoping that you're ready for the, the battle and I'm going to bring the guests up. So first of all, Kay Fabiella and Jonathan Ashon Lamti, together we are all going to amplify DEY, the US version versus Europe. So I'm going to bring them up right now. Let me see. And I'm going to highlight them as well. So first up is Kay Fabiella. She is a DEY and remote team specialist who helps companies translate their diversity and inclusion initiatives intersectionally across distributed teams. She's also the host of the Inclusion in Progress podcast. So if you don't know that podcast, look up in Google or iTunes, go to that podcast and subscribe. The second one is Jonathan Ashon Lamty, and he is a recognized authority on diversity and inclusion in the workplace. He leads a consultancy designing inclusive companies for the 21st century. Jonathan is also a host of the Element of Inclusion podcast, a second podcast that you have to subscribe. And of course, my podcast as well, but those two definitely subscribe. Welcome, everybody. We're so happy Thank to be you. here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Great you're to be welcome. Here. You're welcome. I'm already seeing some comments in. So, uh, Marjolaine is saying, yes, let's build that DEY muscle. Uh, Hasiba is saying, hi, agree. Okay, Michael is definitely watching with his popcorn. So, <laughs> you're welcome, Michael. I hope you have enough popcorn ready to, to join this battle. And um, let's start with the first thing. What is your connection with humanizing the workplace? And I will start with Jonathan. Well, first thing I'm wondering, is this really a battle? That, that's the no, first thing. I'm no, wondering. people want to hype it up. People want I know, to right? I'm just giving them the news that they want to hear. That's all. <laughs> I know, right? I know. We should all be working together. But yeah. humanizing the workforce. So with us, we believe that people are the most important part of any organization. And everyone should have their opportunity, should have their potential have the opportunity to reach their potential within mm -hmm. the workplace. So if we're talking about humanizing the workforce, we believe that people are the most important part. They're human and anything we can do to promote that, to make sure that everyone, the way we describe inclusion, everyone performs, everyone belongs. The more we get of that, the more human the workplace is. <laughs> I love it. Kay. She's been waiting for that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for having both of us here. Yeah. I think this is, I mean, I mean, been watching your shows for a while on LinkedIn, so it's really kind of surreal to be here. And, and yeah, for me, humanizing the workplace, I, I mean, it's, you know, to piggyback off of what Jonathan said, we, we want to give, we want to create spaces where we can be our whole selves. 
and not just our whole selves, but our best selves. And mm. that won't always necessarily be smooth or easy, but at least to be in a space where we know that we're valued and seen and heard for who we are and that we can engage in conversations in a meaningful way that help move us to compromise, that help move us towards solutions, that help move us towards just an environment where people can really perform at their best. I have to say, so I invited Kay a while ago. She was on my radar for a very long time, and I am so happy that she's on here. Um, I also know Jonathan from a long time, a while ago, last year, and um, I challenged Kay to bring on somebody, um, to bring on a Lift As You Climb guest, because uh, this platform is not only for me. Like I said, I'm doing this for my son. I'm doing this for so many other people. And why not bring on somebody that you want to shine the light on them as well, but also include them in this conversation? And she brought Jonathan on. So can you share why? Because he's the best, obviously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm flattered the whole time here. This is great. Yeah, yeah this, this is, really is nice. amazing, right? You know? I was going to say, that... me, oh, do you want to come on? I was like, yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm grateful nice. just to be here, but yeah. sorry, carry on. Yeah, no, and the only battle that we're going to be having is against inequity. That's the only mm -hmm. battle. Like here, we're just, you know, this is this is our kumbaya circle um, right here. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, no, I brought Jonathan on because, okay, so I'm obviously not European. Um, I'm very proudly waved that flag, literally, in some cases on LinkedIn. And as somebody who is of, you know, American passport holder, has called Spain and Europe home for the last 10 years, I have always been looking to not just translate DEI initiatives to the European continent, but also more specifically, find folks who have the lived experiences, have the expertise, have the knowledge of the cultural context of which we live in. And that was the main reason why when I was first looking for the for just knowledge resources to you know, make me a better practitioner, I stumbled upon Jonathan's podcast, uh, Element of Inclusion. It is incredible. It's how I stalked him and found him on LinkedIn and how we've since become friends. <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as Vivian said, who do you want to call up with you? I'm like, more people need to, like, I know you're, you know, you're a pretty big deal already, Jonathan, but more people need to know you, um, mm -hmm. especially from the US side, because I think that and I know we're going to talk about the DEI space in the U.S. versus Europe today. You're already and giving all the goodies away. Why? Sorry, in a loving battle, <laughs> in a loving battle way. Um, but I think the the best way for us to know how to to create strategies that actually are tailored to each context or intersectionally tailored to each context is by understanding different voices from across the world. And so I wanted to bring Jonathan on because he's awesome. So. So, Jonathan, how 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 do you feel after this? Right, you're going, you're having I'm the best life right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to record this. Keep playing. This is like the next five episodes of the podcast. It's just Kay talking. You know, <laughs> definitely, definitely. So, Kay, I very already, much appreciate it. I very much Kay, appreciate it. And, Kay already, and, uh, uh, sorry, Kay sorry. already shared. You know, the question that I wanted to share. So. Um, is there a difference in amplifying DEI in the US and Europe? And I'm going to start with Jonathan. I would say to some, yes, in some aspects. Obviously, there's different contexts. Mm -hmm. But if we're talking about things like race, one thing that's massively obvious is the, the conversation around race in terms mm -hmm. of a willingness to discuss it, the fluency around that is a lot greater in the US, massively. Yeah. 
massively. Like people who aren't even that interested in race are a, at least use the word. Whereas if we're talking about the UK, for example, people tend not to talk about race. They tend to talk about ethnicity. And sometimes they conflate the two. Whereas in the US, it's very clear understanding of what race is, mm -hmm. at least because, in my opinion, because of the institutional issues yeah. and the institutionalized nature of race, race and racism, which we've got in the UK, but it's a little bit more covert. Whereas in the US, there were laws that are really difficult to ignore that, you know, mandated different treatment, different legislation in the way the outcomes for people who are black compared to others, even like Islamophobia as well. Like there have been institutionalized laws against Muslims that have only just been changed in the past sort of like 60, 70 years. So it's mm -hmm. incredible. So, it's, yeah. it's almost similar here in the Netherlands. So in the Netherlands, you know, due to uh, the Black Lives Matter protesting, all of a sudden the, the government knows how to talk about institutional racism, right? They haven't said any sorry regarding, you know, what happened in the past. And I'm meaning in the past and not seeing that what happened in the past 400 years ago is already reflecting every black person in, in, in uh, the Netherlands. So we definitely have a lot to do. And also the word equity, we're not there yet. We are just, you know, working on the diversity and inclusion part. And therefore, we are not ready yet to, to, to discuss the equity part. But I'll, I'll leave it up to, to Kay to discuss the, the U.S. version. <laughs> no pressure <laughs> representing her home country, she says. Yay. <laughs> um, so, so it's so interesting that Jonathan said that, yeah, British people are so polite, Hasiba, exactly. <laughs> I think that's such a great comment. Um, so my experience is, and I think, so my background for those of you who are unfamiliar with my work is I'm a Filipino American who has called Spain home for the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. So I have the immigrant lens of somebody who is an immigrant herself, who is the daughter of immigrants as my parents immigrated from the Philippines. And then the Philippines, which is the product of basically back-to-back -back colonialism. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So you've got 333 years in a Spanish convent and 50 years in Hollywood, which is basically the most recent history of, of my parents' home country. And so I'm already quite intersectional in how I view the world because I, I'm always naturally drawn to stories that aren't necessarily the ones that you see, or I'm always looking for, is that the whole story? Is there another lens to it? Is there another aspect to it? So to Jonathan's point about, you know, even the U.S., conversation specifically around race, which has taken a massive spotlight because of everything happening in my home country. There's, you know, obviously everybody's talking about like 1619, you know, that was like the key, the key date when slavery happened. But, and this is a very uncomfortable conversation I had with my Spanish husband the other day, mm -hmm. actually they copied and pasted the exact plantation, uh, model from Latin American colonies, which were owned by the Spanish 100 years before. So, you know, we just kind of keep pulling at all of these different threads, right? But I think the one big difference in terms of DEI that I found between the Europe and the US is that while systemic bias exists, and we know that there's a reason why all of us are in this work, I would say in the US, I sense it can be addressed more openly mm -hmm. than in Europe. Mm -hmm. Yeah in the workplaces, especially because of, I, you know, somebody commented just now, like, oh, British people are polite. I'm like, I would say that in general, in, in, in just my experience with Europeans, depending on Northern or Southern Europe, there's very much a, here is where, what you're allowed to speak about at work and here's mm -hmm. what you're not allowed to speak about at work. And so 
conversations like this that actually move DEI forward are still quite censored and nobody really knows what to do about it yet. So, so that's kind of my overarching, you know, conclusions. And I'm happy to hear both of your takes on this as the American observer. Yeah. <laughs> He's taking over this podcast. He's taking over this broadcast. But um, from, from my perspective, so from the Dutch perspective, um, a lot of people are having a hard time to talk, definitely talk about race, definitely talk about, you know, the injustice that is happening. And uh, from my side, I just showed Maria Line, who was a previous guest speaker. Uh, together, we are nudging HR directors. Together, we are nudging HR platforms because I do feel like HR needs to speak up regarding the, the dehumanizing factor in the workplace. So that's what, I, what we are doing now. And there needs to be so much more. There needs to be so much more than just, you know, seeing the things only in the media. Yeah, I, I like your point about HR as well, mm -hmm. because one of the, what I find is one of the perceptions of HR is that they're there to protect the interests of the organization, of the business. So when you're talking about nudging HR, that can be a challenge because mm -hmm. some of it the is. processes, some of the issues, some of the yeah. policies, if we're trying to address that, yeah. we're going to be pointing to some extent towards HR who are yeah. the agents of the organization. Mm -hmm. So that can also, that can lead to tension. So, yeah. well, here's an interesting thing. And this is something that I've heard of and something I think that works really well, but it's a challenge. What if diverse DEI, as we're calling it here, what if that person... What happens? It has a completely different perspective. It has mm -hmm. a completely different um, set of outcomes because well, essentially, you're not you're not pointing back to the individuals who you're having to report to. So that can be something interesting. I haven't seen that much in the US, though. I, I'd be interested to hear what that looks have like. Have you seen that in the UK? I, then I have you? Where anywhere. have you seen this? Because uh, like this is the first time. Yeah, this is the no, first time that I'm hearing it. It does. It does happen, but um, it often tends to be task forces, in my experience, mm -hmm. as opposed to a permanent well, role. I'd be interested to hear what you guys think. I think that we need task forces. We need uh, task forces um, inside the company, outside of the company. Um, I also want people, I want organizations to show their numbers. I want them to show their numbers. When it comes to supporting these initiatives, I want to see how many people of color are working there and where are they at? Are they only on the bottom layer or are, are they also on the top? in the top? I want to see numbers. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to pay to follow up after K. Yeah. Um, okay. So my my thinking with this is, and and to your point, I think I don't think it has to be an either or conversation. I think you're right that HR tends to be gatekeepers or tends mm -hmm. to be kind of in charge of the conversation. Um, it is. Hi, I Hi. think my con my con my con my was it my connection. I think it was probably my connection. Okay. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter. So, the beauty of live, folks. <laughs> hey. Um. So I was going to say that. Um. I think that it's we've found at least in the U.S. we've made some efforts around creating internal initiatives for diversity, as in 
it's not just necessarily housed within HR, although it starts that way. So we have CDOs, we have chief diversity officers of companies. However, when to Vivian's point of we are looking at representation in terms of numbers, but then when you look at the C-suite, that now everybody's kind of taking those larger companies to task, the only person in the C-suite who is of color or of any sort of minority or historically excluded group is the chief diversity officer. Mm -hmm. And that's when we need to have a larger conversation around, well, how do we make diversity, equity, and inclusion in the company more of a global initiative in the company rather than it being housed under one person or a figurehead or just a symbol essentially of the hey, window dressing. box. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Yes, the window dressing. So a lot of people are commenting right now, and I definitely agree with uh, with Marjolaine and what Hasiba was sharing, like it's HR and internal communication, but it also needs to come from the leadership, right? Because I see so many mission statements sharing, you know, we stand for diversity, we applaud equality, we applaud inclusion. Well, bring them to light, right? Bring them to light. So a lot of people are reacting right now. Um, it's I'm having a hard time to go to the question. So um, I am definitely highlighting Bernie. Bernie, Yes, yes, we don't have racism. A lot of people, a lot of white people publicly shared like they don't see racism. And I, I was thinking like, if you walk one day in my shoes, mm. you see the workload that I have regarding racism. You see what I want to where where i want to what i want to prevent my son from enduring and jonathan and also Kay, can you share something about that yeah i'm curious to hear your experiences jonathan um for me i would say my lived experience is if we're playing a game of oppression olympics i'm probably not the winner hmm. um yeah. <laughs> but i will That's say that one. um but i will say that my my entry point into this work came from my first my first ever discrimination as somebody who mm -hmm. is what folks would call white passing in the US. Um, I am on the fair skin side and I have a face that is quite confusing for folks. So I get the where are you really from very often. Um, but coming to Spain and and coming to a country which up until recently didn't have that much immigration and being automatically labeled Chinese and all the ramifications of that, the first time I've ever experienced discrimination um, outright on the street was in Spain, was in Europe. Yeah. And so if I'm coming into the conversation from my the last 10 years and what I've experienced, I mean, imagine what it looks like for folks who, the further you are down that oppression Olympics ladder, what they have to deal with every day. And I think that my hope is that by listening to this conversation and seeing you know, someone from the Netherlands, someone from the UK, and someone from the US who is a woman of color now based abroad, is that we're realizing it's not the racism conversation is not something that we can only isolate and say oh that's an american problem you know oh the the that those you know riots that we're seeing are very much you know an isolated thing and so we don't have to talk about that here if anything um we need to double down on it because we're seeing how globally it's affecting all of us and and what that now means for organizations to actually create spaces to hold it rather than kind of sticking their ears in and doing the you know I can't stick my ears in because I have mm -hmm. thumbs, but you understand. Um, it's a people problem. It's definitely a people problem. Yeah, yeah. And Jonathan, uh, to be honest, I tend not to talk that much about 
the racism, discrimination, prejudice that I've experienced. Are you over it? No, it'll take up the whole show. Yeah, there would be nothing left. And also, because I also, you have to remember, I get contacted every single week by people sharing these stories as well. So I try and take that and use that. But what what I will say is, look, there's a reason I introduce myself as Dr. Jonathan all of the time. You know, so you introduce me as Jonathan here. Normally, in any public space, I will introduce myself as Dr. Jonathan. And there's Mm -hmm. a reason for that. Because, I understand that now. I understand yeah, that now. Yeah. And, and some, yeah. do you know how many people have said to me in the past yeah. month that they understand why yeah. I do that? Yeah. Because I walk yeah. into buildings and everything. Yeah. And even in the DEI space, the, yeah. the way I'm treated, mm. completely different. Completely yeah. different before and after I introduce myself. When you say that yeah. word doctor, it transforms the perception. And also, not many people are used to seeing a black man in any position of authority. And for the most part, if I'm getting on a stage, I'm standing here, I've got privilege here in this <laughs> space as an authority, as you've positioned yeah. me, but that's for- When a you reason. go outside, yeah. That's for yeah. a reason, outside of seeing people in like, you know, sports stars, musicians. So it's, I use that deliberately. And yeah, a lot of people yeah. have said to me, oh, we get it now. Yeah, I understand it, yeah. It's weird that we have to, label ourselves to be seen like that it's weird it's weird because if you were if you was a white person nobody would have judged you nobody would have doubted you nobody would have had these questions that they want to ask you where did you study where did you go i need to do that research about it. is he really a doctor nobody would have done that so i think, I think the biggest the biggest difference in the conversation for folks who are listening who don't necessarily have the lived experience is when we're talking about the workplace, my experience mm. is that people of color or people from underrepresented groups are hired based on accomplishments mm-hmm. and the majorities or non-minorities are hired based on potential. Yeah, And just that alone should tell you everything that you need to know about why we have to raise the floor for, for different groups and why our, our this conversation needs to happen. I don't know if I can do this all the time because you guys are sharing so many awesome, juicy stuff. So I'm going to go to the next question because I saw this, I think, on your uh, Twitter. And I was just like, this is the ultimate question. So can you share why DEI is not a crisis management tactic or not the checkbox thing that we often see others do? Okay. Actually, I want to hear from Dr. Jonathan. Well, I would probably talk about what it is as opposed to what it isn't. So mm-hmm. you're right. Many, I imagine the three of us here get calls from organizations as a reaction. Mm. Something bad has happened. Yeah. What are we going to do? We didn't know. All, all this type of stuff. So... I would say if you're if you're in a reactionary phase, that tells us what you think about diversity and inclusion in the first place. And a lot of it is whether it's PR or reputation management, risk management. Yeah. I think it's more useful to think of inclusion. As I said at the beginning, it's about how you can get everyone to reach their potential. Mm-hmm. Individuals reach their potential. The organization reaches its potential. And so it's about moving forward in the 21st century, creating a workplace that belongs in the 21st century. Some of the 
practices and the issues we're talking about, they don't belong here anymore. And not everyone's going to make it with us into the future. This pandemic has revealed a lot of the truth. Organizations, some of them who aren't fit for purpose, aren't coming with us into the future. We need to, see, we need to leave some of these practices in the past as well. So it's definitely not a crisis management. I think it's the, the way to have organizations moving forward in a global economy when we're trying to get everyone to perform. It feels like I'm sitting in church. No, really, it feels like I'm sitting in church where you are preaching, you are preaching. It's just like, this is my ultimate diversity panel. I have so many more, but this is, to me, it feels like you're singing you know it's like the the best beyonce song of <laughs> you are acting and it's amazing it's amazing so uh can you okay can you share your version yeah i i love what jonathan just said i think it's so i think it's so important when i'm just even thinking of the pandemic you know jonathan i've had and i have had offline congress well online you know what i mean offline yeah, conversations yeah, about this <laughs> it's all virtual. It's all online, y'all. Yeah. Um, talking about how it feels like whiplash in mm. just the pandemic, right? We've seen DEI or diversity and inclusion initiatives or diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives rather go from a nice to have to all of a sudden organizations are rushing. I, I don't know about you, Jonathan, but the last few weeks, I know because you and I haven't talked in a bit because it's like, it's just been crazy mm -hmm. and nuts. Because it went from we don't need this anymore, or yeah. this is not this is discretionary budget for us as an organization, which shows you, like Jonathan was saying, where your priorities are. But at the same time, like how to deal with this pivot, how to deal with your own your own personal feelings as a consultant around this was just as important then <laughs> as it is now. <laughs> it's even I'm glad that you're on board and you're on the train, but now I want to make sure that this isn't a flash in the pan thing for you. Mm -hmm. And and so it's how do we continue? And this is the open question, I think, for all of us is how do we continue to show organizations one that this is a reckoning moment that is not just a moment, it's a movement. Mm -hmm. How do we move every single person forward and move our organizations forward into the future? And so one of the things that my team and I did was we put together an executive roundtable at the end of April, talking about talking with different big tech firms to understand how they were taking care of their people during the pandemic as they moved to remote working. And the big thing that came up across the board was we want to make sure that our people are okay. We want to understand that how this pandemic is affecting our different groups of people in different ways and how do we customize and tailor our support to help each of them and how do we make sure that all of these different initiatives that we're considering in our company to make sure that all of our people still know that they're valued and seen and heard continue even after the pandemic ends whenever that happens um, and and move our organizations into the future not just for our future for our current talent but also our future talent because as yeah. we know your son is a perfect example of this, Vivian. Mm -hmm. That's what the future looks like. It's not identity boxes. It's multi-hyphenates. Yeah. So we have to prepare our organizations for that. Definitely. And I, I, I do have to say that the organizations who see the power in DEI and see that they need to do their work or even admit that they don't know where to start, but at least they are calling in some forces to help those are the organizations that will stay longer. Those are the organizations that you'll see the employer branding will fly. Those are the organizations that will be highlighted. Those are the organizations where you don't see, you know, that, that comment, that thing that I shared about Adidas, 
that won't be your organization. So uh, I'm happy that, you know, you are fellow advocates when it comes to diversity and inclusion, because we need to amplify it. And we need to, just like I said before, this for me, it's not a one night stand thing. We need to build that muscle. We need to, uh, it needs to become part of the DNA of the company. That's how I feel about diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Jonathan. I've always got so much to say. <laughs> sure, we have the time. Regarding of the time, do you mind going in over for maybe 15 minutes, if that is okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to okay. spread the word. One, yeah. one thing that I think is interesting, which is a point that you've both raised, is look, how are you distinguishing between organizations who just want to be seen to be doing something now versus the ones who are trying to do something ongoing? Because a lot of the work that we're talking about is not flashy, it's not panel events, it's not um, getting key speakers, it's stuff that's repetitive, mm -hmm. small errors, it's iterative, and no one's going to be looking. And that's yeah. the work that needs to be done, but it often doesn't attract attention, it doesn't create celebrities. And so I'm, I favor that anyway with clients, with organizations I work with, and now I just ask them, you know, I'm assuming this is part of an ongoing program. And when mm -hmm. they say it's not, then it's easy. You just don't work with them because yeah. those organizations aren't going to be going forward. You've got a lot of consumer brands as well. So the example that you brought up, if you're a consumer facing organization and you're not taking this seriously, you've got some huge issues because three, three, four weeks ago, people were using words like boycott and well, actually talk, I, I do have to, uh, sorry, sorry to stop you, but here in the Netherlands, we have a boycott. Everybody's investing their money for just one day, and maybe they will continue to do that. Everybody's investing their money in uh, a people of color uh, organization or brand, because we want to see how we can uplift and use that money into our own uh, our own environment right so just so you know seven seven will be uh an investment day of people of color investing in their own uh community yes okay yeah interesting right yeah and then well there's another point it's like the, maybe they could do it on other days as well but that's a whole mm. conversation yeah but the, the issue about <laughs> if you're a consumer facing brand what can you afford to not take this seriously and the answer is no you yeah. can't at a time when the economy is, I don't know, we keep using the word unprecedented all the time, right? But it's unprecedented issues. Now we've got the, now we're looking at organizations internally, this issue of systemic racism, mm. systemic inequality. If you're not willing to address that, people are just willing to vote and they, they're, they're moving elsewhere. So I think it's a massive challenge for organizations. They need to make this part of a long-term system of change. You don't have to, but the market's going to respond. And we're already seeing that as well. Okay, Bernie is mentioning something which I am curious about. What about key, is there a list of organizations that are really doing a good thing when it comes to DEI? And can we just shout them out? Because I think that we need to amplify it and we need to not, so because sometimes organizations are sensitive when they see a competitor, when they see another organization getting awards, getting, getting something, that they are doing good and also know that it works with hiring, getting, getting uh, new talent, right? So is there a list? I've, I've, I don't see a list in here in the Netherlands. The only list that I look uh, to is 
uh, great places to work. That's my only reference here in the Netherlands. Do you have other lists regarding this? I think, okay, sorry, please, I'll jump in after this. No, it's fine. It's it's so interesting because if you'd asked me this a few weeks ago, <laughs> maybe I would have had a different answer um, mm -hmm. because I think that, you know, Jonathan has brought up a really good point, which I truly appreciate, which is most of the work that we're doing is behind the scenes. And mm -hmm. I think that my issue with highlighting organizations specifically doing this work is that you're unfairly putting them on a pedestal when if they get it wrong, which they will, because if you're mm -hmm. doing it right, if you're doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work right, you're going to get it wrong more times than you will get it right. Yeah. And so, for example, I'm thinking just, you know, a few months ago about Google. They mm. disbanded a, um, I think it was an internal program called Sojourn, which they, they realized that they were talking about the black experience in the company, but it was the black experience for the US and for a global company that wasn't going to fly. So the reason that they disbanded it was because they're looking for other alternatives. They're working with another consultant to create something that is more indicative of the black experience and global. Mm -hmm. And then in the press, in a Forbes piece, I believe it was, this is how I found out about it. You know, and I think, you know, to her credit, the chief diversity officer did an amazing job answering it. She talked about the reason why they got rid of it, but the headline for it was one of these salacious sort of things around, you know, oh, you know, they, we got it wrong. Uh, like they got rid of this program, which means that Google is catering towards, you know, and turn it into some sort of political thing for clickbait. And I thought, well, what an, you know, good on the CDO for doing an amazing job answering that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what an that's actually holding us back as not just consultants and practitioners, but those who are actually intentionally doing the work every day, because if you're doing the work right, you're actually going to find places where the language has evolved, where the yeah. benchmarks have moved, where inclusion or what you understood about the needs to the strategies to create inclusion today was not the right thing that should have, you know, that'll work, you know, in the months to come. So the only reason I'm hesitant to say companies is because, I mean, I know Intel off the top of my head is doing an amazing job. I know there's so many big tech firms that get all the play and I, my, I work with a lot of tech firms, but um, Intel actually set a benchmark and has done a really good job with gender diversity across the board um, and is continuing to, to build on that. But that's the only one that comes to mind that I know of from the news. But even then, from from my perspective as a as a consumer of the news who wouldn't doesn't work with that company directly, I have to wonder what's the story behind that yeah. headline. I I too I too. I mean, um, I am seeing so many window dressing messages that I I had to call out on a lot of people, and I'm still doing that here in the Netherlands. So I definitely agree with what Bernie is saying, that at least, you know, we can discuss about the companies that are doing the writing and, and, and learning from it. Uh, I also wanted to share something about, um, I don't know why. I, I forgot about it, so I'm going to pass the mic to Jonathan and maybe in the, in the meantime think about what I wanted to share. So, Jonathan. Well, one of the things that you brought up and I, is this idea of awards, right? Mm, yeah. I think people think that if you win an award or you've got a badge, that means that you're actually doing the work properly and effectively. That's not mm -hmm. to say that you're not, but what is the award for or mm -hmm. what does it represent? Sometimes, see, we've got to draw the distinction between celebration and effectiveness. Mm -hmm. Because if it's 
if there was an award for an organization that had maybe increased a particular measure of diversity over a period of time, that's like something we could all say they're yeah. doing really well. But yeah. I don't, I don't, I tend not to see those types of awards. Yeah, it, it tends yeah. to be a lot. Of, but recognition is important, and it mm -hmm. shouldn't be dismissed. But what we say, what we find is one of the seven most common mistakes is that organizations put reputation ahead of actually doing the work. Yeah. So if you yeah. focus on the work, everything that Kay was saying, that won't always attract attention. It will help yeah. you in the long term. But if you're saying, okay, we're going to get an award, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get, we're going to sponsor an, uh, and get a table at an awards ceremony. Mm -hmm. We're going to sponsor an event. So we, we will align ourselves with diversity and inclusion without actually being under scrutiny for performing in that way. Yeah. And so I would encourage everyone when we're looking when we're trying to see what good looks like, ask yourself what standard that you're holding that to and then compare other organizations. You'll often find that they're not doing it. I just uh, saw when you look at Financial Times on their website, when you look at the About Us and then you go, you scroll through the diversity, there's mm. something that I saw for the first time and that is a report about their gender, but also about ethnicity and about how they, uh, the, the percentages or how they pay. This should be, to me, it will, should be the standard for every company showing, you know, showing diversity, showing the money, showing the percentages so we can hold them accountable regarding making an effort that they are improving, improving diversity and inclusion and also share stories about how it is. Um, I hear too many, I don't hear a lot of stories about diversity and inclusion and I don't want to see only the, the D&I officer who talks highly about the corporate? I want to see the people themselves making that, sharing those stories so that we can align with ourselves. When I started, and I'm turning 40 in August, when I started my career and up till now, I have been most of the times I'm the only one, I'm the only black woman. And some of the times I'm the only black person within the company of a company of maybe 100 people. Come on. Yeah, it's it happens, right? And a lot of the people too often, too often. A lot of the people who are like, going back to the winning awards and stuff, they tend to be the only black person that they meet as well. Yeah. But you know yeah. what? It's worth us recognizing our own bias here in this conversation. So we're talking about data. We're talking about Europe versus US. Mm -hmm. We have to remember that in countries like France, connect, mm. collecting ethnicity data mm. is not a simple, easy thing to do. Yeah. in the way that we're implying or have implied yeah. or that here in the Netherlands it's not allowed collect the date in the Netherlands it's not allowed it used to but it's not allowed anymore and what we are doing now is we are nudging companies to uh, share diversity percentages um, I don't know I don't know what the questions are but at least they are nudging the the companies to share more of the diversity perspective so that we can highlight that yeah Yeah, because I think that's a crucial point, because what does good look like when you can't share the data in the way that everybody is saying? True. true. And, and that moves the conversation away from diversity to inclusion. Yeah, that's true. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's been a massive frustration for me in some cases of mm -hmm. trying to get some of this data in the UK and in other parts of Europe as well. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, yeah, it's... And that's the whole goal, right? Diversity is diversity is not the end goal mm. ever. 
in this work, it's it's so that all of us who've been onlys in rooms and <laughs> the facts, the, the, the lived experiences of, of anybody who is from a historically excluded group across the spectrum no longer has to feel that way. That to me is inclusion. That's when Jonathan and I don't need a job. Yeah. I don't think that'll happen, but. <laughs> it will take a while. It will take a long while. I think it will take a long while, but also what Bernie is asking is very interesting uh, the companies there are saying that they are agile, which implies that they have transparency of their principle. And I don't see anything about the EY. And when it comes to agile, whatever term it is, mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to employee experience, there's there seems to be an exclusion when it comes to diversity and inclusion. There, with whatever uh, the label or the flavor is, there seems to be that it's not for everybody. Yeah. You have to remember that we're talking, we're talking about systems that genuinely look invisible to some people. Mm. Yes. So yeah. if you speak to people and, you know, we do interviews, I do a lot of interviews, people genuinely think that their organizations are meritocracy. And so all the inequality that we might refer to, they think that it's, it's just by chance or as Kay was saying, it is inclusive but there's another explanation for why that hasn't happened. So mm -hmm. people genuinely think that. So the yeah. way I describe it is, look, we are telling people that the world isn't flat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, We're saying that the world is a globe, but guess what? Mm -hmm. When I look outside, when I go in there, the world looks flat. It really mm -hmm. does, doesn't it? It looks flat. But if you know how to look, if you know how to observe and perceive the world, you can understand that we're, we are in a globe. So part of what what we're doing is letting people know, guess what? There are other ways of looking at the world in mm -hmm. order to understand that it's not flat. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> you just blew my mind, Jonathan. I love that. So I have to touch on this question, and that is, should we or should we not talk about race at work? And why yes, why not? Okay. <laughs> okay this this is where you where you are go to battle mode is that it no i'm kidding no it's not that at all um i okay i it's so interesting for me because almost all of my d e i and i will use this interchangeably so for those of us mm -hmm. who are based in europe i know the conversation here is very much diversity and inclusion d mm -hmm. and i I, as someone from a U.S. background and as someone who does a lot of work with companies, I use DEI, diversity, yeah. equity, and inclusion, just so to, to define that for folks who are just joining in on the conversation. However, um, I think equity is, to what Vivian said at the top of this conversation, is definitely still a, an amorphous term here. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because we haven't had the race conversation. And the fact of the matter is, as somebody who is the literal byproduct of colonialism, um, we haven't talked about the fact that most of the systems that we're seeing around race or around um, you know, how we've built hierarchies and companies and organizations have all stemmed from the fact that the countries that had guns and ships first took their belief systems with them. And we're still seeing the generational ramifications of that. So until, whenever I would walk into my European clients' offices or would liaise with them for the first time, they would always contact me about gender, which I know is obviously 
Vivian and I can talk about this for hours, it's very important, <laughs> but it's the most visible and quote unquote easy diversity to talk about because it doesn't have to dive into the discomfort of a system that is as prevailing and as ingrained in our DNA as race is or ethnicity, as it were, uh, yeah. in, in a European context. So it's really refreshing now to see my EU-based clients all of a sudden want to open that conversation, whereas before, I mean, I walk into a room and I am my whole self, <laughs> so I will want to talk about race, but for many folks who it's their first time liaising in the conversation or entering diversity and inclusion or trying to create something in the company, it's like, let's deal with gender first and then we'll talk about race. Whereas now, we're finally having that conversation. So I think that, yes, we have to talk about it. We have to be mindful, and this is where I'm actually turning to both of you as people who were born and raised in the in the EU, in, in Europe, about whether that's called race, whether that's called ethnicity, whether that's mm -hmm. a colorism conversation. I don't know. And that's, mm -hmm. the, that's what now companies that are based here, in, in my experience, have to have and reckon with for us to fully be able to understand dismantle why certain people aren't included, why yeah. certain diverse groups that we're trying to gain representation for are starting with less in life or with mm -hmm. more obstacles or more you know, headwinds rather than tailwinds. And so that's yeah. what we have to talk about and race is a critical part of that conversation. Jonathan. Well, for me, it's a loaded question, right? In that mm -hmm. I'm black, my PhD was about race, yeah. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, and I talk about it a lot anyway. So I, I hundred percent think that it's important to talk about it, particularly because so many people do not. It's mm -hmm. invisible to a lot of people, which is why a lot of people don't talk about it. Um, Kay's point about gender is crucial, yeah, because organisations look at diversity to mean gender. But if you looked at the people who were benefiting from those initiatives, it wasn't all women. It tended to be white middle-class women. Mm -hmm. So there, there is a racialized element in there because if, if we're getting the gender piece done, just as you said, Kate, then we'd expect all women to benefit, right? Yeah. So the fact that that wasn't happening, it draws attention. If Once again, if you're willing to look, that only some people benefit. So... It's important to talk about race, but once again, the way we describe it is it's taken centuries to perfect. People think it's invisible. It's a system. It's almost, you know, it's like breathing the air. It's like a fish in water. You don't know it's there. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a, it is absolutely crucial to, to speak about it. Getting back to the idea of race, ethnicity, I think because those are different things, which particularly in the UK are conflated. So if you're for people in the UK will know this term. B-A-M-E, Black, Asian, yeah. Minority, Ethnic. Yeah. Now, if you hearing that, it's normally, it's a, it's a euphemism for people who are non-white, right? But Black, Black is referring to a racial group. Asian is referring to geography, or at least to some extent ethnicity. And a minority mm -hmm. ethnic is referring to ethnic groups. So it's conflating a lot of different things. So a useful thing is to just recognize what is race, what is ethnicity, mm -hmm. recognize where, where they're conflated, and then we, at least we're talking about it, which means then we can start to address the issues of colorism as well, like Kay said as well, just to so understand you, that. At least talking on, about it in a 
you touched on so many layers and I want to bring it back to school because the organizations are doing their best and at least the organizations that I'm hearing about and talking about. But I also want to do something because um, when you look at our history books, when you look at the lessons that the children are learning, a lot of the black history was, it isn't in the history books, which mm. made the UK great, which made Spain great, which made the States great, which made, uh, which made you know, a lot of the companies, a lot of the, the, the countries that are now profiting mm. from uh, what happened for 400 years ago slavery um they don't want to talk about it and then they address that it was so long ago but yet i'm not disrespecting anybody i don't want to disrespect those who lost their their, their family or uh those who lost people during world war ii but for us that past for us it's it's worse than world war ii it's worse than world war one because we are still being affected by something that happened 400 years ago. And that's why I feel we need to bring our history, the black history, the people of color history back in the, to the school books, because it starts from a young age. Once I, I learned about the Ghanaian history, the, the relationship that Ghana had with the Netherlands, I learned when I was 15 and was just like, okay, we are talking about the golden history, the golden this. And I learned that at a young age, but never, nobody never told me about the slave history, the slave trading, and what happened in Ghana, and what the Dutch, the the inbring of the Dutch had, and now that I'm older, I'm also realizing that what happened in the past, and the way we were seen in the past, and the way we were judged in the past, it's been passed on generation for generation for generation, and I do feel like once people are opening up regarding inclusion, regarding diversity they can also bring that back to home. But I do feel that the schools need to be included. So one of the, the major things that happened here in, in the Netherlands during this, um, during this lockdown and also during this uh, Black Lives Matter movement, they made a commitment to add you know, some of the history pages back and to share some of the Black history that has to be included in the history pages. Yeah. That's but it's so powerful. Powerful. Yeah. It's, but also, you say black history, but you're actually just talking about history. Yeah, yeah. Thank black. you again. Thank you. About history. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also, because the other thing you said as well. So hey, maybe this is maybe this is the battle bit, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, come on, gloves on. When, when you said because um, you made a reference to something that happened 400 years ago, yeah. I would draw attention to what is happening now as in mm. this is something that is happening now started then but this is a system that yeah. as you said produces yeah. and reproduces itself yeah. so we're not just talking about a historical event we're talking about ongoing mm -hmm. systems ongoing yeah. processes ongoing yeah. policies yeah. that for the most part appear invisible so yeah. when you can't find things in history books or the curriculum at school that's not an accident. It's designed yeah. to be that way. Yeah. I'm forgetting the, you know, the, the name of the lady. I'm, she's so important and I'm forgetting her name. Um, the American lady who made um, colorism, not colorism, but the difference why, why people don't want to be a black person. Um, her name. Do you know who I'm talking I'm about? I'm not a historian. So, okay. 
<laughs> she's a very famous American lady. She's still alive and she talks about Oh Jean Elliott. Yeah. Julie, yeah, right? I yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What she has done and the way she has amplified diversity, but also made it visible that a person, a person, a white person knows in their heart, in their mind, they know the disadvantages that we suffer, that we see. Because the fact that she's asking the question, would you be a black person for just one day? Nobody's standing up. Nobody is saying, they, let's hey, let's let me be a black person for one day because they know, they feel it, they sense it that there is a disadvantage. They might not know everything, but they know that there is a disadvantage. Absolutely, and yeah, yeah she's she's prolific, and and I think to to your point, and kind of piggybacking off of off of that. Oh, see, she found it too. Jane yeah. Elliott. Yay. <laughs> um, so I think when we're talking about actually creating inclusion in mm. companies, you know, if we were trying to thread a, a, a thread, a thread through all of these different beads and all these different thoughts for folks, we really have to understand that this goes so much deeper than a black square on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It goes so much deeper Preach. than, you know, understanding like it's a it's a UK thing, it's a Netherlands thing, it's a Spain thing, it's a US it's a people it's a, thing. It's a people thing. It's a human yeah. thing. And you know, to Jonathan's point, it's it's so it's so ingrained into how everything has been built. And it's been done so so strategically and so um, so mindfully to perpetuate systems of power that how can we possibly in one solution or in one lifetime or in one company hold them up as the standard and the model for, look, they fixed the diversity problem. Look, yeah. they're inclusive. They've made it work because we still have our own generational messages to deal with. Mm -hmm. We have the fact that there are studies that talk about, you know, if you historically don't see yourself represented in media, and in books and in history books, as it were, in the Netherlands or anywhere, the fact that all of us have to find out our history later on in life shows you the luxury. Like, I remember when I have my bugbear with DNA tests. So I'm going to go off on a rant here. I swear there's a point. <laughs> if you have the luxury of wanting to know your heritage because it goes so far back, mm -hmm that's a completely different conversation for somebody who is the direct product of slavery or colonialism. Yeah. And so if we're trying to have conversations about creating inclusion in companies and creating inclusion in countries and what that looks like to dismantle it, we really have to understand that it is long-term work. It's going to require uh, an intersectional strategy. It's mm -hmm. going to require different folks from different sides of what we consider the like identity box spectrum all contributing. I mean, I just think about, I shared this the other day um, for Juneteenth. I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't know about Juneteenth until I was, I went seven or eight, yeah. but this is way back when, when we had to go to the libraries for encyclopedias, <laughs> because one of my older white music teachers, and she was, I mean, she was old enough to remember Jim Crow. Let's just say that yeah. she was quite old. <laughs> But she taught us um, lift every voice and sing. Yeah. And she said, 
uh, you know, go to, you know, I encourage you to go and look it up because there's, there's a huge history around this. And she knew we were like, you know, 10, 11 year olds, we were, we were, we're little shits. So we didn't really care about this stuff, but I was a nerd. So I went to the encyclopedia and I found it afterwards. And that's when I learned about what that day meant. And that's when I learned about this song and its connection to the movement. And if I was able to learn about that as a second generation Filipino American from a white woman in Southern California, these are how stories shift. That's the power of creating inclusion in companies and in countries and in every, at every space where we should be having diverse voices contributing to the conversation because that's the goal is that it doesn't become a black history conversation or an yeah. Asian history conversation. It's what, what makes us human and how do we recognize all the different ways that the systems that we have benefited from or been oppressed by for so long that we can actually come to the table together and, and dismantle it for a solution that really makes us all human and that brings out the best in us. Okay. I, I, I'm I, going I, off the topic a bit, but I swear. No, 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 I'm, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. And I am... I love that. I don't know what to say because I'm so I'm taking all the words in that you're both sharing and it feels to me like this conversation is needed was needed is needed and I'm happy that you're sharing it now because um because you're helping so many people with this understanding this um making me teaching me even to look beyond not really to look beyond I, I'm even almost getting emotional out of it because if it's, um, it's causing other goosebumps, Hasiba is sharing she's getting goosebumps, but even I am having goosebumps and even I am affected by this in a positive way. So thank you. Thank you both for, for doing this. I also wanted to share something. Bernie shared a very long message, so I'm going to read it out loud. She's sharing, I like Abraham X. Candy's quotes from How to Be uh, anti-racist what's the problem with being not racist it's a claim that signifies neutrality i am not racist but neither am i aggressively against racism there is no neutrality in the racism struggle the opposite of racist is not isn't not racist it's anti-racist what's the difference so let's look beyond that because um the word racist here in the netherlands it's a very loaded you know, statement. So I, most of the time when I refer to that, I talk about dehumanizing because I want to have a conversation with them. When I start using the word racist or not being racist, they are going to go in their, um, let's say little kitty mode where they are not going to listen to me anymore because I call them racist and I'm leading them away from the thing that I want to discuss. What about you? What do you think? Jonathan, I know you're discussing this book in your book club, so I'm excited to hear it. <laughs> Thank you. I, we're, we're discussing how to be an anti-racist in our mm -hmm. next book club. I, I do refer to it directly. Um, mm -hmm. I tend, what I don't do is call people racists. Yeah. Yeah. yeah? Because it's of, often people refer to racists. They're talking about racists, but actually they're talking about discrimination. Mm-hmm and acts yeah. of discrimination, individual yeah. acts of discrimination perpe perpetrated is the word I'm looking for, by individuals. 
Yeah. Whereas I think it's useful to think of racism as the system, and you've heard me say this several times, yeah. a system of advantage or disadvantage. When you think about it that way, it's got more predictive power. It explains what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I, ret- when I refer to racism, I tend to refer to the systems, the structures, as opposed to individuals themselves. Yeah. And that is more helpful. Um, because in the so if I go back to the UK, but, or anyway, being called a... Actually, I would say this. Historically, being called a racist, that was one of the worst things that anyone could call you, right, in the mm-hmm. past 20 years. But the meaning of that means less because it's been thrown around in so many different yeah. ways. And it is a disputed term as well. So not everybody's clear about what they mean. But I, when I'm talking so about we, racist, we... racism, I, I am mm-hmm. very clear. I use the word. Do we need to nudge people to become anti-racist? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I like that book, because whether you agree with it or not, it's quite binary. I, this is mm-hmm. why so there's plenty of rooms to, room to argue about that book. Yeah. But you are forced to make a decision or a conversation, mm-hmm. have a conversation. Yeah. So one of the things that I've said is that I think people are going to reinvent this term anti-racist mm-hmm. to differ from what the author, Ibram yeah. he said. So yeah. we'll see. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think <laughs> there's so much I'm listening to. I'm learning too, y'all. Like this mm-hmm. is great. <laughs> I'm really enjoying this conversation. I I think to Jonathan's point, I I love I love that anti-racism is now a term. Yeah. I'm so glad it's in our collective vernacular because I never in a million years thought I would say the words white supremacy in a corporate setting for corporate workshops as much as I have, as I, as I have in the last three to four weeks since everything happened in the US and our global anti-racism movement took off. Um, I think to Jonathan's point as well, there is, what it encourages you to do is to choose a side. And yeah. I think that on the side of tackling systemic racism, which is mm-hmm. what we're dealing with, I love that Jonathan made that distinction, you have to be active and anti-racist requires you to do rather than a static being of are you racist or are you not racist and you have to continually measure and prove that in your actions in your words in your thinking in maybe not maybe not your initial reaction because everyone has bias and that's a conversation for another day Um, but maybe deciding to you know what your second action or your second you know thought is um, that's being anti-racist. And I think that's a really interesting conversation that I'm grateful for within diversity, equity, inclusion companies. And I think that, you know, to Vivian's uh, question about how do we talk about racism, I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that calling people out is sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, calling people up to be something like anti-racist yeah. or to be somebody who is to actually actively work to dismantle this system is much more powerful because it gives that person the agency Mm -hmm. rather than in the static box of like well you're racist Mm -hmm. um and i think that's where where a lot of conversations have unfortunately stalled um so yeah i'm I'm just grateful that it's a term now because it makes it makes my conversation so much more fun Okay, going going up to the last question, I know that I think within five years we'll be still talking about, uh, definitely we'll be talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, but 
what is your wish? So what is your wish for 2025 when it comes to humanizing the workplace and DEI? Jonathan. Five years. Um, yeah, there's a lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah. well, to be honest, every, every year, at the end of every year, I make predictions for the, mm -hmm. next, for the following year. Um, actually, did you predict this? No, no, I, I, I did predict. I, I was about to say, no, definitely didn't predict this. And even Not the pandemic, the come on. <laughs> in the video, I was like, no, I couldn't have predicted that. Mm -hmm. But I think, um, what, what do I want in five years? Yeah. For us to have made, for inclusion, well, actually, some of the things I said. So let's say D&I leaders reporting into HR, I'm reporting into the senior leadership team. Senior leaders being tasked with having, let's say, D-E-N-I uh, measures, outcomes as part of their performance related. I, I saw that um, with Wells. I saw that with Wells Banking or something. I saw that with them, that they are doing that. Sorry to interrupt. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. So if that was a standard thing, that yeah. would change. That would yeah. change a lot. Yeah. Of behavior. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things that would be a big deal anyway. There's a million other things, uh, but a couple of things like that would be useful. Would yeah. be very useful. So you're saying show us the numbers. No, no, no. I'm I'm saying incentivize behavior. I don't want to say show us the numbers because as we said, if it's about inclusion, then maybe the numbers won't even matter as much. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is let's incentivize people's behavior mm -hmm. so that they're motivated to do to, to act in an inclusive way. Yeah. Okay, I get you. Yeah. Okay. I would love to see. I would love to see mental health as a as a more critical part of the conversation. Um, I think that especially given we do not know the ramifications of this pandemic, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we do not know the ramifications of um, what we're going to look like on the other side. I think that mental health as as an inclusive entry point into the conversation um, for DEI could be really interesting. Um, because it's something that we know that it disproportionately affects underrepresented groups, especially people mm. of color, especially when you look on every other news headline and mm -hmm. people could be your brother or sister are being victimized every day. Um, we know that, um, this pandemic is disproportionately affecting women who are having to deal with more caregiving duties, um, and what that's going to mean for what their roles are going to look like in the future. Um, you know, so in 2025, I think what I'd really love to see companies do, if we're really talking about bringing full selves to work or bringing, creating spaces where people can thrive as their best selves, we need to be talking about how do we let people stop feeling like I have to check part of who I am in at the door, or I have to hide what it is that I'm struggling with, or I have to, you know, differentiate personal and professional because work and home have been blurred forever. Mm -hmm or not a company is willing to actually ingrain that into their organization, the lessons that they've learned about what happens when they, they let people show up as their full selves, even if it was a really awful experiment in remote working at scale um, and, and the way that the pandemic forced our hand, I think that we have a lot to learn in terms of, you know, giving people the opportunity to, to know that they're supported and seen even in their harder times, instead of feeling like they have to hide or cover who they are. That's what I'd really love to see. 
I love it. And I also love that you shared something about mental health because um, what people don't realize is, um, first of all, people of color are dealing with this whole pandemic. And on top of that, there is Black Lives Matter movement going on. So see that as uh, a second pandemic on top of everything. Um, I do have to admit, in the first few weeks, I was affected. I was really affected and I didn't know how to how to cope. I found my own coping me mechanism uh, surrounding it. Also being open uh, about it towards my son caused me to open up some of the, the scars that I, you know, I healed from uh, years ago. And um, I want you to see us. I want you to see people of color. I want you to recognize us. And the only thing that I am asking is to listen and learn. Listen and learn. No judgments, no biases. Listen and learn. Listen how you can do better and learn how you can do better because now you know better, especially after watching this session. And I also want to um, ask everybody who's watching, everybody who's listening, share this episode with other people. Share this with those in power. Share this with your manager. Share this with HR because they need to hear this. They need to see this episode so that they can know better. And like Maya Angelou says, you can do better. So thank you for watching. And I would like to say, Jonathan and Kay, please stay on. But I am grateful for uh, teaching me, teaching us, inspiring others. Um, I'm so grateful for this conversation. And we need to do a follow-up. Maybe next quarter, do a follow-up. Uh, because there's so much that, you know, you, you, I, I saw the plugging that you wanted to do another episode and another episode. So I, I heard you and we can definitely make that, make that happen, but know that you, this, this battle, it was a battle against inequity and you made it happen. The both of you made this magic happen. So thank you for that. And looking forward to the next episode. Thank you so much for having I, us. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for everyone for listening. Thank you, Kay, yeah. for bringing me to the party. <laughs> you're my, you you're, my, you're my favorite diversity dance partner. <laughs> the plus one. Yes, definitely. So I'm going to close off with uh, sharing the episode of tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm inviting Sonsoles, Alonso, and Ami Saborovic to have that conversation about breaking silos as an artist, same time, same place, uh, only a different day. And my name is Vivian Aqua. I am the workplace wellness advocate and together we can humanize the workplace. So thank you for watching. And if you're listening, thank you for listening. And until the next time, bye. Thank you.